an unusually large team of alchemical actors have gathered in the our, at our theater today to tell the final story of our Lady Magic series, which brings us full circle back to Poltergeist. We talked about Poltergeist on the first episode, you guys remember? Yes. No. No. <laughs> I wasn't here. Uh, so on the first episode, um, I was talking about the paranormal class that I teach and uh, paranormal history class, and we had some paranormal investigators visiting, and they mentioned uh, that they believed that poltergeist phenomena. Uh, Olivia, what would you? How would you define poltergeist phenomena? Uh, the definition, I feel like, especially in modern day, kind of varies, but probably the most consistent that I've heard, like modernly, is that. Poltergeists are literally a manifestation of bad energy that's normally created by typically people. Um, so if you harbor like trauma your whole life and you just have never figured out a way to like get that trauma out, then you create a poltergeist. And that poltergeist is then going to suck the energy out of you. Right. Uh, in the movies, we think about them as spirits. Yeah. It's the, the, the word poltergeist is German for spirit who bangs stuff around. <laughs> Accurate, I guess. Yeah, the Germans, they don't, they don't mince words. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> That's a broad accusation. Right, so... We, <laughs> well, anyway. Uh, so the, the idea about the poltergeist um, for, the, for this paranormal investigator was that, as Olivia's pointing out, it was this uh, energy and that it was associated particularly with teenage girls. Yeah. So uh, I'd never heard this before, and I was fascinated by it. Uh, and so our series has been seeking to uh, try to unpack the connection between uh, teenage girls, young girls, uh, and their sexuality, their budding sexuality, and the paranormal, which almost always results in some breaking or subverting of the culture. In the case of Poltergeist, the stories we're going to hear today, these are women who are breaking apart the family environment. Uh, they, they literally turn their homes into the sort of like, grotesque circuses. Puberty's a bitch, man. <laughs> Amen. So, Should that be our hashtag for this season? Puberty's a bitch, man. In 1979, Alan Gold and Tony Cornell published a book in which they surveyed 460 reported poltergeists. 29% of those cases involved women as an agent for the phenomena, 11% involved men. That's pretty significant, um, statistically. Uh, all of the agents, the 40% of the poltergeists that were caused by agents, so 60%, they couldn't identify an agent at all. But uh, in the 40% of these cases, the agents were generally under 20. Uh, so when an agent could be identified, in the case of a poltergeist haunting, two out of three times that agent was female under the age of 20. Pretty big odds. Mm -hmm. Since Gold and Cornell have already done the sociology for us, we don't need to figure out whether poltergeist phenomena are more closely associated with men or women. It's teenage girls by a long shot. But are these girls mediating otherworldly forces, manifesting telekinetic ability, as Olivia is saying, faking it, imagining it, or something else entirely? We are going to focus on five documented cases of poltergeists involving women today. They are all from the 20th century. Although poltergeists are not unique to the 20th century, nor are female agents. In 1526, which is James's favorite year, yep. a monastery was haunted by a poltergeist, whose haunting came to be centered around a young nun named Antoinette de Graal. These phenomena included soft rapping, the sounds of a feeble voice, and apparitions of a human figure that the nuns identified as a sister of the convent who had died two years earlier. Riley, your experience with nuns, is yeah. this uh, fairly typical? Um... Nuns are crazy, man. Okay. <laughs> nuns have always been scary. Listen, this is not so, so you're saying nuns are yes. crazy. Yeah, yeah, actually, but yes, in reality, this small. was very, very um, 
very common. Also because I think it has to do that nuns are very, um, obviously, like, daily um, interacting with the spiritual. Like, they've d- dedicated their life to yeah, the spiritual. Sure. Like, that's that why sense. they become nuns. And nobody knows what the Holy Spirit is. And that's what they're uh, it's crazy, poltergeists, man. right? So Holy Spirit is the <laughs> we are not saying that the Holy Spirit is a poltergeist. No, we are. I do not. We do not. We do not invo- endorse the views of James Kaplan's <laughs> confessions. TM. Uh, hey, I went to Catholic school. The reason we're focusing on the 20th century. So that's a, an example from before the 20th century, just to, to let you know that they, there are plenty of poltergeists before the 20th century. But we're focusing on the 20th century because these are cases that tend to come complete with more detail to analyze. We're going to look at two famous and three less famous cases to control for the problem of publicity. Publicity always introduces a, a sort of motivation to cheat because you're getting famous. So, you know, that's why you might fake some of these phenomena. The three less popular cases we'll be looking at are the Saki poltergeist in Scotland, the Andover poltergeist in Hampshire, England, and the Jaboticabal poltergeist in Brazil. Say that one more time. Jaboticabal. Po- oh, Whoa. or Brazil. Are you looking? No, no, no. One, one, more. one more, just time. one more. Can I don't think I'm doing it right. One more. Jabotibical. <laughs> the, the two famous cases we'll be looking at are the Smurl family haunting in Pennsylvania and Olivia's favorite... Enfield! The Enfield poltergeist in <laughs> Enfield, England. Nice. My name is Rob Thompson. I am a professor of occult culture, also theater. Uh, I am the supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors. I'm here with Olivia, our grandmaster. Hey, guys. Also, our crack team. Cracked team. Cracking (laughs) team. Uh, We've got such a team here for you today. We've got James Kaplangis. Good morning. We've got Shannon Landers. (laughs) Hello. It is 10 o'clock at night. We've got Savannah Verrett. Hiya. Riley Claxton. It is so late. Jacob Weasley. I'm tired. Oh. On a late night. This is Jacob After Hours. <laughs> Jacob After Hours. Uh, Brandon Walls. Uh, Morgan Jung. Hello. And Ray for the first time. Hello. Oh, and this is a cult confession. We the members of the secret order of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. History of the occult. Um, so we're starting with Enfield because of the cases we're analyzing, this is the one subject to the healthiest share of doubt, in my opinion. Olivia will perhaps argue with me. Uh, and it helps to shed some light on what good skeptical arguments are against poltergeists, so we can see if our other cases hold up. What is it about Enfield that makes it less than perfectly persuasive as a legitimate poltergeist? Olivia, are you ready to fume? Good. You're doing good? Okay. I'm always ready to fume. Neat. I'm ready for Olivia to fume as well. The f- phenomena <laughs> that took place in the London suburb of Enfield in 1977, which is a great decade for poltergeists. Okay. <laughs> it really is. Like, half yeah. of all poltergeists, I think, come from the 70s. Even if you look at a lot of horror films that are based on... Right, it's all the 70s. They all come from yeah. that time period, basically. Right. Anyway, we're also, like, making The Shining and The Exorcist. Yeah, and- 80s. 
uh, Janet, uh, age 12, and Margaret, age 13, two of four children of the divorced Peggy Hodgson, were the focal point of the strange happenings in the home and were accused by skeptics of manufacturing many of the so-called poltergeist manifestations. In fact, the girls confessed to producing some of what investigators witnessed. This scandalized Society for Psychical Research investigators Maurice Gross and Guy Playfair, which is an awesome Playfair. name. Yeah, isn't that an awesome? It's a very yeah. British name. Um, but both remained convinced that there was legitimacy to the haunting, despite the girls' efforts to fake some of the phenomena, and they engaged in bitter arguments with skeptics in the media through the 1980s on, I don't know, like Donahue and stuff. I always bring up Donahue. It's like my go-to <laughs> 80s talk show. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah. White like hair, big glasses. Um, it began on August 31st when a bureau moved 18 inches across the floor on its own. What's a bureau? No, it's a dresser. It's a dresser. Not an entire government entity. Rob did not get his PhD to say dresser. I mean, I like that. Are you calling me a fancy French man? No, a fancy American man. You to prove yourself. Marbles, Legos, and a chair. Tea bags. Began, There's a whole thing with tea bags. Oh, I thought you were threatening me. Began moving. Began moving on their line. own. I'm just gonna. <laughs> it began on August 31st when a bureau, which is French for dresser, thank you, moved 18 inches across the floor. Marbles, Legos, and a chair began moving on their own in the same way. Yeah, I don't think they're supposed to do that. Reporters from the Daily Mirror arrived, and one was hit in the head with a flying Lego. <laughs> That's so Are you funny. Oh my God. Maurice Gross, uh, the investigator responsible uh, for the designs for a rotating billboard. True story. He invented the like, rotating billboard. Full circle. What a guy. Yeah, yeah. Or just a, we need a whole episode about him. <laughs> <laughs> so Maurice um, was also a member of the SPR, and he took up the investigation and was joined by an experienced investigator, Guy Playfair. So Guy knew what he was doing. Maurice had just invented a billboard, and thought this sounded like a good way to spend Ready to go. spend a few weeks. Podcast. Uh, or a year. They spent one year visiting the house, including 180 individual calls and 25 overnight vigils. The Enfield poltergeist was responsible for a whole bunch of phenomena, but we'll just hit on some of the highlights so we can get down to what makes this haunting so controversial. Janet levitated a few times. Just a few. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> Margaret uh, was held down by an unknown force. <gasps> As James is right now. James is currently being held down by an unknown force, and it's Olivia called, is starting with gravity. two bags. Small fires started and were extinguished. Poop. <laughs> is that what? it? Wait, what? Yeah, that's it. What? That's, that's it. it. You wrote that in there. Say, Say no more. Poop. Poop. Yes, I wrote. Uh, my script says long pause. Poop appeared in inappropriate places. <laughs> Is, Where are the inappropriate where? places? And it's really any place. Any place. This is just my house. That doesn't flush. Oh. With just babies? That's oh. what happens. Legos, flying, small fires, poop. 
That is literally my hope. Should we call someone? <laughs> in December, Janet started to produce an otherworldly voice. The voice claimed to belong to a Joe Wilkins. Mr. Wilkins had been the previous occupant and had actually died in the house. The voice was hard swearing. He said things like poop. <gasps> and he claimed to sleep in Janet's bed with her. Scandalous. Yeah, wow. I think that's illegal. <laughs> Janet produced ears. the voice, somewhat muffled, even with her mouth taped and full of water. So that's... Because that's... she used to do ventriloquy. Ah. She, there's a whole theory because yeah. she would. Um, she took these like lessons at... Through her school or something? <laughs> On ventriloquy. Yeah, the story school. It was school. a weird what time. Class there also then? yeah, there was a there's like suggested to be a lot of bias because um yeah. the dude that what was his name that ends up like being with them long term kind of was very he got very close to the family. Um. And the daughter, I know especially the younger one got very attached to him. Mm-hmm. And even the mother kind of got a little bit like on and off attached. It all boils down to a common complaint relative to poltergeists. Nothing that Gross or Playfair observed could be proven beyond a doubt to have been produced independently of either Janet or Margaret. This in contrast to somebody like Maggie Fox, who left the house and still the taps continued, right? Mm. The voice is creepy, makes for good television, or in this case, a movie, The Conjuring 2. The re-conjuring. But it's impossible to say whether or not Janet is producing it, or Margaret for that matter. Ventriloquism is, as Olivia has pointed out, very difficult to rule out, although it would be a pretty neat skill for a child that young to be able to produce a voice straight from the diaphragm. Because she'd have to be. Yeah, if your mouth is full of water, yeah, you have to produce it from the diaphragm. And so she was able to talk from her diaphragm, which is pretty cool unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the poop, not cool. <laughs> not cool. Not cool, Janet. Not cool, Janet. I feel like our like, 12-year-old <laughs> listeners at home are like, really excited for this episode. Hashtag, <laughs> not the poop, Janet. But we've, <laughs> incidentally, episode one, we said anyone Please. under 13 oh. shouldn't be listening to the, anyone. They're oh, rule well. breakers. They don't listen, though. There was also some significant psychodrama afoot, uh, which Olivia's alluding to, uh, which doesn't necessarily disprove the, the case, but it throws some doubt on it. Gross had lost a daughter named Janet in a motorcycle accident, and here was a little girl named Janet who had been separated from her father in a nasty divorce with daddy issues, and here comes substitute daddy, who just so happens to have a dead daughter with the same name. And how else to keep him around, but... Uh, So the skeptic psychodrama theory, uh, which are some of my favorite words thrown together, (laughs) uh, and I'm borrowing from an article in The Guardian by Deborah Hyde here, uh, goes that Janet had heard about poltergeist phenomena produced by Matthew Manning in the 1960s and was driven to seek attention by her parents' divorce. Now, Matthew Manning, interesting guy, um, as a child he produced 600 signatures spanning over six centuries of historical figures on his wall. So he was supposed to have been able to sign the names of people as they would have signed them, six like 600 different individuals. Uh, we're not going to debate the merits of this case. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a lot of healthy skepticism of uh, Mr. Manning's phenomena. He has since gone on to become a psychic medium and a healer, um, and plenty of skeptics have weighed in. But back to Janet. Uh, she heard about Manning and these signatures and his channeling of the spirits, and the argument goes that she decided to manufacture a poltergeist, which won her the attention of two men who could serve as surrogates for Daddy. 
um, at least one of which was vulnerable as a result of his personal loss. Gross and Playfair set up a camera to take photographs every few seconds and produce some difficult-to-believe photos of Janet levitating. Um, we'll post those up on our website. She really looks more like she's jumping oh, making, really? or making a time jump, oh, you know, man. because the camera would flash every three seconds. So can we recreate the photos? If you'd like, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, was we'll, it like we'll post those on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was. It looks a lot like that. Yeah, well, so, with the legs in the okay, air. When you said levitating, I pictured that she was like parallel Flat. to the floor. No, no, she's like. It looks like. Uh, so it looks like she's standing up, but like, like the end in the of a, the opening to an '80s sitcom. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, then that's like. Uh, there's reports of the girls telling adults to turn around and then pelting them with Legos and blaming the ghosts <laughs> for it. <laughs> also of locking themselves in their bedroom to produce poltergeist, poltergeist sounds um, or to move furniture around and be like, stop it, poltergeists. <laughs> right, I did the same exact thing growing No up. more. <laughs> when I was mad. You would just... Yeah, move furniture and yell, stop it, poltergeists. Basically. Yeah, yeah, remember Jacob was the wrapping in the wall. Any any poop? No, that's Good. gross. Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> that's gross, Janet. Yeah. I'm not saying it's impossible that a legitimate poltergeist appeared in this case. I am saying that the case is too messy to ferret out the truth. Mm, kind of a pun there. Uh, double entendre. Yeah. Uh, one way or the other. Uh, reading skeptical reports of this case, I encountered the phrase inattentional blindness, uh, which is the observer's tendency to miss something in their visual field when their focus is elsewhere. That's we... not what I thought that meant. Whoa, what did you think it meant? I don't know, like you unintentionally became blind. Oh. <laughs> like you just like, like too many people intentionally yes. That's what I was thinking. That's my yeah, nobody problem here. Except for Oedipus. Nobody has well, ever intentionally and become... And that is why I was questioning. We can explain <laughs> materialized marbles reasons. and Legos this way. We can also explain skeptics' failure to witness phenomena that they don't believe exist using the exact same psychological concept. So, Lady Magic, question mark? They have, or what people have said is that it might be, oh, I just lost my train of thought. I don't think it's real. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it's real. It's not Lady Magic. Uh, we they're do, not We ladies. like to believe that. They're not ladies. <laughs> we, they're not the ladies. magic is real, but it not the be. lady. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what I was trying to get at is why couldn't it be both? That's what I was thinking. Like, it's the same case to me as, like, the, the Fox sisters. Like, maybe maybe it's a little bit of both. We're oh, anxious it's the to believe. it's processed cheese, right? It's the processed cheese. We're <laughs> yeah. anxious to believe, um, in this case, that teenage girls are capable of doing supernatural things. Yeah. Um, when there's a tradition of this, as you're saying with the Fox sisters. But they may turn out to be a kind of processed cheese. There's also a woman... <laughs> who we haven't talked about. Eusapia Palladino is one of the most famous mediums investigated by this SPR. Um, we're not going to go into her in length, at length today, but this is just reminding me of her. Eusapia Palladino was produced some bizarre supernatural phenomena under test conditions in sort of laboratories with these SPR scientists, but she also faked a bunch of stuff. It kind of <laughs> sucks that there's always someone faking. Like, you know, like you can't, everybody's like, oh, this is so full crap. But because of like it's one like person a faking, self-fulfilling cycle. Yeah, there's yeah. always somebody faking, and it ruins it for everybody else. Yeah, I think it's entirely possible that it could be both. Like if something did happen, and then these girls that we talked about that have daddy issues and want that replacement, all of a sudden yeah. they're getting this attention and they're getting that kind of fulfillment that they wanted in order to keep that there. They're like, oh well, turn around, we'll throw some Legos. Like you know, I mean, yeah. you know, something could have started this. That's but what the poltergeist. They get done. all this attention. They get all of this. Um, you know, uh, 
film it and so they they want to keep it going as much as they can and this is what brought them there in the first place okay uh let's let's make the jump to scotland and uh, we're gonna do a little investigation of now the saki poltergeist uh, Virginia Campbell, age 11, uh, began to experience uh, poltergeist phenomena in Saukey, Scotland. She was the youngest child of her family, and she provides much stronger evidence of a channeled poltergeist um, that is much more difficult for us to explain than the Enfield. She was originally from Ireland. The family was originally from Ireland. They had just moved in with Virginia's 30-year-old brother and his two children, and Virginia shared a bed with her nine-year-old niece, Margaret. That's going to become significant, in my opinion. So let's, let's remember that she's sharing a bed with her nine-year-old niece. The phenomena began with a noise like a bouncing ball, moving from the bedroom to the stairs to the living room. Of course, there was no ball to be found. We just heard the sound. <laughs> the ball just They've got lots of balls in Scotland. Scotland. You I, just have to lift up their kilts. Oh, oh, oh. Rob. 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 We are no longer oh. PG. Like, We're not this lady magic. Uh, yeah, These are all rated E. Uh, <laughs> and I love the Scots. While sitting on Virginia's they'll be the first to tell you. While sitting on Virginia's bed, Mrs. Campbell was suddenly thrown from it and the sheets rose up with Virginia moaning like she was sick. Knocking sounded throughout the house, and the vicar was called. Oh, we've got Riley here. What's a vicar? There can be vicars for different things. So the Pope is called the Vicar of Christ. Um, so it's a person that is like a representation or a figurehead. advocate, like figurehead kind of thing. So um, that can heal and perform. So he's like the advocate for the church in this particular town. Do they he do exorcisms? Uh, not. That doesn't mean that you're an exorcist, no. But you, but could you be. can. Could you be? You could be. Anyone could, could be. do an exorcism. Everyone could do an exorcism. It's child's But you don't have that's not required to be an exorcist to be a vicar. We do not, exorcist exorcist we do not yeah, endorse yeah, yeah. the view that exorcisms are child's play or that children should play with them. <laughs> the views of James Caplanges are not the views of occult confessions, the sacred order of alchemical actors, myself, or Olivia. TM. <laughs> So the vicar arrived at midnight in time to see a wooden chest move a foot That's and a half forward and back into its original position. Mm -hmm. A foot and a half, incidentally. At least they put it back. <laughs> 18 inches, yes. We have a repetition a of 18 inches. I mean, like, inches. honestly, they put yeah, it back. That was nice. Oh, yeah. Um, people named Margaret, too. Yes. When they asked Margaret to get back into bed with Virginia, the knocking went crazy. Virginia's pillow rotated. Lids opened and shut. The oh sheets the puckered as if something <laughs> were rippling across them. Desks levitated. Virginia fell into trance and called out for her dog and best friend. Both were left behind in Ireland under somewhat traumatic circumstances. Oh, no. According to the Saki paper, the dog had run away, and Virginia's best friend had died. So she just went into trance. Why is yeah. the paper reporting on this? <laughs> on her the death of her friend or yeah, the dog yeah the both. dog <laughs> I don't I can't I'm more oh after dog. after the events I guess yes okay. had she ever gone <laughs> into trance like let's hear from Virginia's open? neighbor shall we someone mentioned at this time that animals are to some degree psychic so I decided to test this theory and I took my pet dog along to the Campbell house and even although these same knockings and rappings could be heard in Virginia's bedroom my dog was at no time disturbed by it at all my feelings on the matter are that. These events have nothing to do with ghosts or spirits. I believe that the shift in environment from a rural farming community life in Ireland, leaving behind her friends and such, and coming over to Scotland was, in a sense, a bit of a trauma, and that somehow this suppressed emotion was externalized to objects and items close to Virginia. 
A doctor, H.W. Nisbet, visited and tried to help the child. His report seems to contradict the theory that Virginia was psychically responsible for the phenomenon. We decided then to try sedation. Virginia was given mild tranquilizers to quieten her. If the phenomenon were being conjured by her own imagination, they would no longer appear if her brain was dulled. But even though the brain was not working normally, the phenomenon still appeared. But the phenomena were tied to Virginia. They tried moving Virginia out of the house to the town of Dollar, and the phenomena followed her, so they brought her back to Saw Key. At Virginia's school, the teacher Margaret Stewart, a bunch of Margarets, noticed Virginia trying to hold down her desk lid. When the girl lit up, the lid would open and close on its own. When the student sitting in front of Virginia got up to bring an assignment to the teacher's desk, the child's little desk rose off all four legs and levitated a few inches from the ground. When Miss Stewart sent Virginia to see the headmaster about her trouble, it took the help of three children to shut the door behind her after she'd left the room. Objects would rise and move away from Margaret. And according to Malcolm Robinson, who interviewed Ms. Stewart many years after the fact for a Supernatural magazine, these phenomena tended to take place on a 28-day cycle. Rob, what would you do if that happened to one of your students in a lecture, during a lecture? Carry on. It's <laughs> <laughs> a normal day. If I could get onto the desk, I feel like that would lend me... A little extra I've something. I've seen you on the desk before. That's I do get on, yeah, but if it was also levitating, Have I feel like... Have you just been waiting for that moment? Yeah, actually, I, that <laughs> I would like be great. If you could manage that for me next Okay, I'll try. I'll work on it. Virginia fell into trance periodically. Apples floated, doors slammed, and colored writing appeared on both Virginia and Margaret's faces. She made national news. An African rich doctor rode in with a cure for Virginia's ghosts. A woman showed up trying to touch Virginia because she was one of the chosen ones of heaven, she said. The church gave a service in Ms. Stewart's classroom. Probably the vicar was there. Probably the vicar. Virginia Campbell was investigated by SPR member A.R.G. Owen. That's a whole lot of letters. Arg. Arg Owen. <laughs> so they call him in the business. <laughs> Arg concluded that the taps could not be explained or even produced in a way consistent with Virginia or any other family member faking them. The sound could not be duplicated. There was a theory that groundwater or changes in the earth beneath a haunted place might explain the sounds, but there were no significant shifts under the Saki house at the time. Owen is now the third SPR investigator we've heard from, and we're going to hear from a bunch more before we're through with our poltergeist today. So, Olivia, it's time for our brief history. And we're going to keep it very brief because we have three more poltergeists to investigate. Yay! But let's do just, just, just a brief history of the Society for Psychical Research. Hurry up. The briefest of histories, James! <laughs> <laughs> the SBR was established in 1882. Prominent members included the psychologist Frederick Myers, Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-discoverer of evolution. Yeah, he actually discovered it uh, all, right around the same time as Darwin, and he pushed Darwin to publish his theory on the origin of species. That's well, right. I've never heard of this dude before. Fun fact. <laughs> and he was a spiritualist. He believed in, in the spirits. J.J. Huh. Thompson, who discovered the electron. Mm. Ooh. It's my favorite part of the atom. <laughs> That's shocking. I'm going to quit. <laughs> <laughs> Educational reformer Eleanor Balfour, Charles Dod Dodgson? 
Dodgson. Dodgson, also known as Lewis Carroll, and the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson. Also known as the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson. In its first decades, the society identified six areas of study. Mesmerism, Reichenbach? Reichenbach. 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 He has a, makes a mean popcorn. <laughs> I'm going to quit this podcast. <laughs> Reichenbach's phenomena, which we call auras today. Physical paranormal phenomena, which are, were generally defrauded by the society, haunted houses, spontaneous telepathic phenomenon, like knowing a loved one is dying or seeing them before or after they die without receiving any actual news, and thought transference, which really dominated most of their research. Haunted houses, for example, were often interpreted as being the product of thought transference. The victim of a haunting was actually experiencing hallucinations produced by another person's intentional or unintentional psychic influence. So that, that stuff that's been banging around my house? I was about to say you do this all the time to me. Right, well. You flipped it. Right back at you. <laughs> that's how we talk. <laughs> Moving into the 20th century, the society tended to focus on specific gifted individuals who they tried to study under controlled conditions. A notable example was Pearl Curran? Pearl Curran. Pearl Curran. who produced novels and poems under the influence of the spirit Patience Worth. Then, as time wore on, the society continued to study anomalous phenomenon like poltergeists and haunted houses, but became more interested in parapsychology, which sought to demonstrate an underlying paranormal or psychic ability across large groups of people, rather than individual, specifically, specific individuals. Special it, ones. But it strong. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, but basically what was happening, um, the early parapsychologists were looking for special individuals. They'd get them in a sort of lab setting and they'd study them. But as we moved forward, we were looking for everyone having psychic abilities. And that was the whole Rhine period. And anyway, we'll do another episode on this. Let's move on. Nice job, Olivia. Yay! Wasn't the best, but damn, was it brief. Well, it wasn't the worst, yeah. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to the... Jabotikabal Poltergeist. Bless you. <laughs> in a little house, in a little town, 200 miles north of Sao Paulo, in December of 1965, bricks suddenly started to appear inside the house. That's what? not useful. They go outside the house. I mean, I, I guess by that we don't mean that they were holding up the walls like they would just suddenly on the couch pop up yeah there would be a brick <laughs> and that's in brazil in, in brazil yeah. well that's actually so <laughs> annoying a similar phenomena occurred in north aston in england in 1591 actually when stones materialized inside the house um this is one of the rare early records of poltergeist phenomena and involved townsfolk seeing phantoms of disfigured or distorted dogs around the property sort of interesting stuff but back to brazil the Ferreira family, I'm not, Spanish is not, Portuguese, this would be Portuguese, yes. wouldn't it? Not my language. The Ferreira family called their local priest to have the place exorcised, because there were just bricks everywhere. Um, <laughs> and we can't when... get in our house. <laughs> there's too many bricks. I keep over them. <laughs> well, like if you roll gorgeous. over in the night and there's a brick there, that'd be un- Yeah, Morgan has a point. Should they have called a mason? Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
He told the family that their daughter, Maria Jose, was a natural medium and was mediating the phenomena. The stones continued and eggs joined the mix. That's useful, Mm. though. But you don't want them together. Maria began to ask the spirits for things, and they delivered her candies and jewelry, which they laid at her feet. That's That's pretty cool. But this just sounds like fairies so far. I'm fine with that. Right, but this is, it's going to take a very dark turn now. I'm just saying. We've been having fun, but it's about to get unpleasant. So the bricks were just presents. (laughs) They're just not good at giving presents. It's like when your cat, you know, gets like a dead mouse and brings it up to the door as a gift, and... And they're so excited about the dead mouse, and you don't really want the mouse, but like it's their gift to you. That with, but with bricks, they're laying down with bricks. It's endearing. It's dishes, <laughs> dishes, I mean, picture frames, and furniture <laughs> began flying around the house and smashing to pieces. Mm. And the force turned against Maria. While she slept, it bruised her entire body and attempted to suffocate her with a cup over her mouth and nostrils. Ooh. It jammed 55 needles into her heel. Wow. Where did it get the needles from? Listen. Where did it get the bricks yeah. from? <laughs> Listen, but she had some really nice jewelry on while it happened. So, so. I think she should have said thank you. <laughs> you guys are Listen, horrible. This story is going to get so heel. unpleasant, and maybe you're going to feel so bad. Grateful. In March, you guys are going to be like, I am feel so guilty for the jokes I was just telling no at this person. So. In March no 1966, her clothes spontaneously caught fire at school. And the same <laughs> afternoon, oh her parents' bedroom also burst into flames. Did they die? Or you wrote this uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> No, they, did, they didn't die. They didn't die. Her parents took her to the spiritist medium, Chico Javier. Javier was a major figure in spiritism, especially in Brazil. He wrote over 450 books in his lifetime on the subject. You might remember from our series about the Chevalier that spiritists are like spiritualists, but with the addition of belief in reincarnation. Jacob used to be Chico. Uh, Like spiritualist mediums, spiritists believe in communication with the spirits of the dead, but also that those spirits are on an evolutionary path and return again and again. Javier, for example, called his spirit guide Emmanuel and claimed that the guide had once been a Roman senator and a professor in France. It's true. Impressive. J- Jacob knows, because he was Chico. I was <laughs> Channeling the spirits, Javier told Maria that she'd been an evil witch in a previous life and had killed many, including the spirits speaking to her. This torment was the work of spirits seeking revenge. Well, how would he explain them giving her gifts at the beginning, though? Yeah, the Was gifts, it just like a ha-ha? Just to fool her. Yeah, the fool her. Because <laughs> in 1970... Maria drank formicide, a kind of pesticide mixed with soda, and died instantly. She was driven to suicide by the poltergeist. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. How now do I do she... feel a little bad? Yeah, I knew you would. That's the only 1970. Um, I got to do math here. You always ask these freaking questions. I just like to like put things in perspective. Yeah, perspective, It would have been Rob. five years of haunting. Uh, so she'd be in her late teens, early 20s. That's a shame. So, um, but there's two two ways we can view this death by formicide, actually. It's possible that she killed herself because she was being haunted by the poltergeists, or... They killed her. Poltergeists. They put pesticide Uh, in her fizzy bubbly. Uh, Because they materialized objects, they could have materialized the poison into her drink. Do poltergeists possess people? I know that kind of happens in the movies. Uh, That's, like, debatable. Mm. There can be... No? Because they don't really have, if you go with the classic, like the actual, like, I guess what people accept as poltergeists now, they wouldn't possess because they're like an advanced ghost. 
That's the best way I could. Right. They don't do are usually like mischief makers, right? No, they're like out to kill. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah they're, they can be quite <laughs> unpleasant. And possession is usually attributed to the devil. Yeah. Whereas poltergeists are supposed to be Wait, so spirits the, the of some kind. That bang things like around. Yeah. Yeah. Poltergeists are more like... Bangers. <laughs> with a Z. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, and that's that's our Brazilian poltergeist. So let's get on to the next one. Uh, this one is probably my favorite uh, because it's the most ridiculous, in my opinion. This is the Smurl family haunting. Smurl. Sorry, the Smurl family? The Smurls. S-M-U-R-L. Um, and this was a Warren investigation. Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, two fairly famous demonologists, um, Catholics with a strong belief in the paranormal. The Smurl family haunting uh, took place in West Pittstown, Pennsylvania over the course of 13 years from 1974 to 1987. Jack and Janet Smurl, another Janet, <laughs> moved to West Pittstown with their two daughters, Heather and Dawn, after Hurricane Agnes had flooded their homes in Wilkes Bar in 1972. I can say Wilkes Bar because I went to college south of there. Nice. I thought it was Wilkes-Barre. Wilkes Bar. <laughs> in 19, uh, by 1974, they had added two more girls to the family. The poltergeist first surfaced in January when a television set caught fire. Sounds like some classic poltergeist the movie sure. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dawn claimed to see floating people in her bedroom. Unplugged radios played. Toilets flushed by themselves. Sort of the opposite of the Enfield poop. Um, <laughs> they bring it back. They're an OCT poltergeist. This is what happens whenever I go to like the mall because they're automatic toilets, so it just scares me so much. I'm like, it's flushing! Why? It's poltergeist! Poltergeist, and I just run out. Footsteps sounded around the house. Drawers opened and closed on their own. Horrible stenches wafted through the house. Yeah, and sure, blame it on the poltergeist. Are we talking, like, <laughs> sulfur? The sound of violent arguments pierced through the walls, and rooms would suddenly become frigidly cold. The German shepherd was picked up and thrown against the wall. <gasps> oh, my God. And daughter oh Shannon God. was pushed <gasps> down the stairs. I-, I love how the dog upset you more. I was <laughs> going to say something that this upset everyone else way more than her. No, it's okay. I'm more upset about the dog, too. <laughs> I'm way more upset. With the ceiling crashing behind Shannon and nearly killing her. Oh my god. So they called in the self-proclaimed demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren. And that's when things started to get weird, as it always does. When the Warrens show up, things get weirder. Income Warrens. The Warrens really deserve their own episode. We're going to give them one. Uh, Their careers and theories of demonology are so fantastically complicated and bizarre. Um, But we're not going to do that today. We're talking about poltergeists. We're talking about Lady Magic. The Warrens claimed that the Smurls were being tormented by at least one demon, which they attempted to expel with holy water and prayer. The Warrens tended to find demons in most of the paranormal scenarios they investigated, so we've really got to leave the the demon idea for another day. We're not going to dig into that. But they were a big part of publicizing the Smurls story since they were already nationally famous. Let's hear a bit from Ed. The Smurls are truly a family coming under visual attack. The ghost, devil, demon, or whatever you call it, it is in that home. We're dealing with an intelligence here. It's powerful, intangible, and very dangerous. It was now 1986, and that's when the supernatural sexual assaults began. Ooh, yikes. (laughs) Dawn Smurl, the oldest daughter, had been grabbed in the shower by a presence that also had brushed up against her. Then Jack, the father, was, according to Ed Warren, 
raped by what he called a succubus. A hag-like woman with scaly skin and missing teeth paralyzed him and rode him to a sexual climax. The weather had been too warm for Janet, who went downstairs to sleep on the couch. That same night, Dawn had a dream that her father was being attacked by a hag-like woman with sores all over her body. This sounds like Rocky Horror. (laughs) Or The Shining. Yeah, oh, jeez. They had a traditionalist priest, Robert McKenna, perform a series of exorcisms, but it didn't alleviate the problem. When they went camping, the poltergeist followed and threw a trash can at Jack. Back at home, Dawn saw her earrings float up off the dresser and around the room. Janet was attacked by a horned figure who apparently wanted to sexually assault her, and Jack was the victim of a second succubus attack. His legs were scalded in a way that could only be soothed by holy water. Whoa. Jesus. But I mean, like, what were they wearing? Are you are you slut shaming the squirrels? Are you slut shaming this family, Riley? They were asking for it. They invited the media in and attracted national attention in hopes of getting help. They said, although I'm not sure how they expected help to come through this decision. Uh, At this point, they already had the Warrens and the Catholic Church. What more could you want, Riley? <laughs> Everyone just Nothing. looked at Riley. <laughs> That's all I um, uh, Riley, what is a traditionalist priest? Um, a traditionalist, well, now or then. They're kind of uh, traditionalist. In 1986. Um, in 1986, it'd be something when that um, still heavily kind of relied on um, like the devil uh, Latin masses, like they didn't like, rely on the devil. Not rely, sorry, but they like very focused, the idea very focused on the devil. That the on devil's evil. present in this world. Um, that was that was their kind of primary. And they were rejecting the translation of the mass. They were. Okay. All rejecting Vatican too. The Warrens had developed a real appetite for media attention, stoked by their involvement with the Amityville Horror. So that's uh-huh. where they first got their start. And ever since then, once the bug bit, it's sort of like cocaine. They just that had to keep going. Like, yeah, like. For everyone, too. Yeah, like, every time. That was the huge thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a third exorcism gave them a few months off, uh, but when the poltergeist returned, they moved away from the house and published a book about their experience. Church officials weren't sure what to make of it. Let's hear from the Reverend Gerald Mulally. We don't know what it is. That's a problem. We believe what the family is telling us. It's the explanation for what they're experiencing that we're not sure of. The mentalist, who went by the name of the Amazing Kreskin, visited and said that he'd investigated 200 cases of similar hauntings, and they almost always involved young teenagers. He didn't offer further comment. Allentown psychologist Robert Gordon said, People often look at demonology to explain many tensions that they experience as individuals and within their families. They should consult mental health professionals that are not looking at them as sick or bad, but will help to alleviate their sufferings. Skeptical investigator Paul Kurtz wondered about Jack Smurl's mental health. The question has to be raised as whether or not Mr. Smurl was delusional or suffering from hallucinations or brain impairment. Mr. Smurl had meningitis in his late 20s, and in 1983, he'd undergone surgery to remove water from his brain. Before the surgery, he'd been experiencing memory loss. Oh no. James, James has lost it. Is that a thing that happens a lot? Yeah, how do you get water in the brain, Rob? I don't, when I'm not swimming, that kind of doctor. When you go swimming and you know when you get water in That's in your, in your ear. You can't really, it goes in. 
<laughs> if you don't get it out of your ear fast enough. Out of neuroscience, I guess it's not important. Um, but you take a turkey baster and put it in there, and you like get the water out. Oh, the point F- is, you know, like the neti pots, you use that. Oh my god, this is legitimate neuroscientific problem. The point I'm trying to make is perhaps these issues with his brain may have caused his experiences of being haunted by scaly hags. And... Oh. You can't really trust anyone's like stories if they've had water in their brain, or right? If they've been with a hag, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that poor judgment. <laughs> I mean, That's what. <laughs> Let's bring this on home. The Andover Poltergeist is our last case for this evening. The Andover poltergeist first surfaced on Good Friday of Easter weekend, 1974. It's the 70s again. At the Anderson home on Collingswood Walk in England, 20-year-old Maria Andrews and 12-year-old Teresa heard tapping sounds in their bedroom, not unlike the taps heard by the Fox sisters in Hydesville, New York, 126 years earlier. This is particularly apt for the Andover case because unlike Virginia Campbell's knockings at Sawkey, the family was able to communicate with the taps and elicit an intelligent response, the same way the Fox family identified the dead peddler, Charles Rosma, behind the tapping haunting. This might be my favorite case from today's case studies, my my legitimate favorite case, not my sarcastic favorite case, uh, because the story is familiar, which suggests that the phenomena are repeatable. We saw it in the Fox home, we saw it a bit with Virginia Campbell, and now we're seeing it in Andover. And the investigator who gave the report, Barry Colvin, actually withheld the report for 30 years because the family wanted to avoid publicity. Mm which he managed to do fairly successfully. So this is the exact opposite of the Warren situation with the Smurls. At first, the sisters thought the taps were coming from their neighbors, who they shared a wall with behind Teresa's bed. So Teresa tried whispering questions, which a practical joker on the opposite wall wouldn't have been able to hear, and the taps responded all the same. The taps became a nightly routine. After getting into bed, Teresa would ask if anyone was there and a single knock would respond. One knock was yes, two knocks were no. The whole family eventually got in on the act, and then they began working through the alphabet in the way early spiritualists, including the Fox family, had. A is one knock, B is two, etc. Let's hear a bit of this from Teresa. Ask his name. Okay, okay. Uh, What's your name? Is that an, an E? Okay, stop talking. I'm trying to count. It's a long name. Is it B? An R? I don't think that's it. An R? Are you, um, Eric? Eric? Oh. Oh, Eric. Eric. Um, um, are you, is he living? Is he dead? Are you alive? Uh, dead? How did it die? Why Why are you here? Who's going to win the FA Cup final? Okay, really? I <laughs> Look, I just want to know if Man City wins. I... <laughs> Mr. Andrews placed bets on horses based on Eric's communications. They sprinkled holy water around the room and hung a cross on the window and invited a medium to visit and talk with Teresa. Let's hear from the medium. His body's been buried somewhere under the floorboards. 
I don't mean to alarm you, Teresa, but it seems to me that the spirit is attempting to possess your body. I understand the family's made it a sort of game to communicate with Eric, but I want to caution you all to be very careful now on for Teresa's sake. On April 29th, the knocks sounded all night and kept the family awake. No amount of pleading could get Eric to stop. The next night, paranormal investigator Barry Colvin was invited to the house. The girls went upstairs to try and speak with Eric, and Eric consented to allow Barry into the room as well. Colvin still wondered if the taps might be coming from next door. So on May 2nd, with Teresa and Mrs. Anderson present, they asked Eric to tap on Teresa's headboard. With some effort, the vibrations and wraps were moved from the wall to the headboard. Then they had the wraps move to the bed frame. One night, Teresa was having difficulty contacting Eric, and so Kevin, Teresa's brother, decided to taunt the spirit. Eric, I think you're a bloody great liar. You are, Eric. You're a liar, and you're not underneath the house. And Eric responded with a resounding thud, keeping the tapping up for a while afterward. Colvin conducted a test. He held numbered cards and asked Eric to tap the number. This worked with at least an 80% success rate, which is pretty amazing. Uh, no matter whether Teresa or even Colvin himself knew the value on the card, Colvin attempted to photograph Eric with an infrared flash, but on that he had no success. He tried to get details about Eric's life to reach, research him, but he couldn't make out a message amidst Eric's various taps. Then one night, Eric had a clear message for them. He says, I am here to rest and to stop my bones from rotting. Then on May 10th, after a few days in which the taps had grown less frequent and softer, 15 minutes passed in which Teresa tried to get Eric to tap, but he didn't respond. Eric, are you there? Have you got a message for us? I feel quite sure that he's gone and gone forever. He's passed on his message and no longer has anything to say to us. Colvin visited a Mr. Loveridge, a local historian who had written a book about Andover. There is a record of someone having been murdered by hanging at Drunken Tree Drove around 1890. The Drunken Tree itself, where the hanging took place, was close to Twining's Tea Factory in near Collingwood Walk, where the Anderson family lives. Apparently... The murdered person's name was never recorded. And so it seems that Eric was this particular person and that Teresa had somehow managed to bring him out um, to make him speak, or she provided the means to allow him to tap. That, anyway, is the premise of Teresa's and Andover's Lady Magic. So, this is it. This is our last poltergeist. How do we tie these together? How do we tie these stories back to our ladies? A lot of things happen in today's episode that we talked about in previous episodes, which the is tappings. interesting. Like the tapping, the rapping. Yes, <laughs> right. The um, sexual assault. Did that happen in a different episode? <laughs> the, yeah. The main, it's... A lot of oh, James. Oh. Sure. The involvement, I see, I see what you're getting at. So the um, association of sex with lady magic of yes. some kind. Yeah. Oh yeah, like Victoria Woodhull was all about sex. Right, channeling, opening up subversive kinds of sex, that sort of thing. And it was around, like, puberty time in a lot of them. Right. There were always skeptics. Always skeptics. Mm -hmm. Always skeptics. Some tragedy That's in this. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, we, we had a number of tragic stories that we've, we've explored. Tragedies for these girls, but also we've seen some tragic circumstances with folks like Maggie Fox. Mm -hmm. And Joan of Arc. And I guess the theory that these women are just doing it for attention and not... Like, they're not actually experiencing these things. A lot of I guess it goes along with the skeptics. Yeah, they'd be little. The taint of publicity, mm -hmm. sure. Um, so what do we think? Is Lady Magic a real thing? It's got to be. 
I'm living it, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) For as long as, I mean, we have documentation for, there's been like at least records of or allusions to an association of females in the Met. I kind of feel like if it's, since it's a recurring thing, there has to be something behind it. Yeah. I'm going to give my theory. Um, you can comment on it as you please, and, and then we'll close out for, for this series. Um, we're going to be taking a month off so that I can have my child. I'm not Yay. birthing the child into the world, Congratulations. but I will be catching it. Uh, so I need, <laughs> like to, baseball, need to be there right? for that, yeah, and then I need to recover. Catch. If yeah. you need a catcher's mitt, I have Awesome. It's quick. I might. I you got to be ready. Yeah. So um, this, is, this is how I see uh, all of these cases if we, if we try to look at them together. Basically what we're looking at is uh, all of these women are in a circumstance where they have some great work to do or where they are um, emotionally troubled or driven in some way. Joan of Arc is driven. Marie Laveau is driven. Uh, but at the same time, they are culturally repressed when we think about figures like all of them, Maggie Fox, yes. our Greek maenads, Marie Laveau, a black woman in New Orleans, Joan of Arc, a country girl. They have great ambition, they have great drive, they have something inside them, let's say an extra fire in their soul that their social circumstances make it difficult to express. I think that um, people find ways to channel that energy through art sometimes or, or through war, violence, love, but the paranormal can be an outlet. And so the paranormal surfaces in these cases as an outlet for this overabundance of whatever these women have. And it's lady magic. It's women in particular, because women have historically been culturally repressed. They're the ones most likely to feel themselves in a circumstance where they need an outlet to express that extra energy, that extra drive to achieve or accomplish or solve some horrible injustice in the world. And so the paranormal swings into focus to assist them. I'm not suggesting that spirits suddenly gather around them necessarily, but that something about their energy manifests itself in an occult way. I really like that. Yeah, Yeah. it's really interesting. I can see it. I know, in my mind's eye. I was just going to say, like, even just personally, like, I know the moment, like, times in my life where I felt the most repressed or, like, under pressure are the times that I've found, like, more spiritual things or more paranormal things or I just come across more things in those times. So I guess that could be, I guess you could argue that's just a mental thing, but I don't know. I think there's something to it, too. I agree. I can even relate in that, even though as a Catholic, but I think that's definitely in, like, harder Mm -hmm. times in your life is when um, you definitely, I think, can attach to or find um, the more spiritual aspects of your life and in the world. And And Yeah, and at the same time, I mean, as far as poltergeists go, I mean, the whole thing about poltergeists coming from, like, being manifested from negative energy, Mm -hmm. it makes sense for these young girls who have lots of negative energy around them and you know all right olivia i think that's it for lady magic rip uh, lady magic let's bring it on home
I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such a time as we do it again, season three. Yes, as I mentioned, we will be taking a month off. When we return, we will be exploring whether or not you have a soul. Yes, the immortal soul will be on offer and we will be attempting to discover if it is logically possible for us to be, in fact, eternal. Rob's soul might be sucked out of him during baby month, but... <laughs> I will get it back in time to do that series. And yes. then our final series for this year, Olivia is wetting herself in anticipation. <laughs> Hello, E-rating. <laughs> Black magic. So if you just give us a month so that I can have a kid and, and we can get some stuff together, we're going to come back, back with some really cool stuff. Uh, so uh, today we were joined by, again, James Kaplangis. Goodbye, everyone. Shannon Landers. Bye, guys. Savannah Barrett. Goodbye. Riley Claxton. Bye. Jacob Wheatley. See ya. Brandon Walls. Goodbye. Morgan Jung. Bye. And Ray for the first time. Hey. Hi. And also bye. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a pleasure sharing uh, the Tales of Lady Magic with you all. We encourage you to visit us on Facebook. Please subscribe. Please, 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 if you can spare a dollar, if you can spare a dime, there are plenty of bonuses now on our Patreon page. Just give us a buck. A buck a month is all we need to encourage us. Uh, and you can listen to interviews that James is doing with uh, some of us about occultism and our practices. Uh, and we've got bonus footage from our Wicca episode, all sorts of cool stuff. So uh, we look forward to speaking with you again on the other side of the month. We'll see you all, hear you all listen to you all in July. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.